The Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ According to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver and price of him on whom a price has been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to, and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, 27 to 56. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. 
As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So all the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. With a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on the reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion who were with, and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Joseph the mother, the sons of Zebedee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Almighty Father, when Jesus hung upon the cross, uh, very few remained with him, and yet some did. Mary Magdalene, Mary Jesus' mother, and several other, others of the women, and so many others ran away. Father, we have all run away in our different times and in different ways, but we ask that you might grant us the grace to remain at the foot of the cross now, just like those women did. Give us grace to remain there and give us grace to see like the centurion, Jesus to be the son of God, truly. And we ask this for his glory and our good. Amen. Please be seated. And um, everyone grab your palm crosses. Um, 
So uh, as as you all know, uh, today is uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday looks back on the one hand to uh, the moment that Jesus entered Jerusalem just days before his death. And, and when Jesus entered Jerusalem, as we remembered at the very beginning of our service, he entered Jerusalem to great acclaim. However, just days later, uh, the, some of the same crowd that had welcomed him with so much enthusiasm turned on him and called for his death. Uh, and therefore, Palm Sunday always feels like a little bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? Um, and you can see the contradiction uh, in these in these little crosses. Um, so uh, grab your grab grab your palm cross. They're made of palm leaves. And uh, two thousand years ago, palm leaves were kind of the Jewish equivalent of what you might wave on the Fourth of July. You know, like a little flag or something that you might wave on the Fourth of July. Uh, it's a sign of celebration, patriotism, joy. And the crowds uh, waved palm branches as Jesus entered Jerusalem as if to say, Jesus, you're, you're our man, you know, you're our king, we're 100% with you. Uh, however, these palms are folded into the sign of the cross. They weren't on that day 2,000 years ago. And this is where the contradiction comes in, because the cross 2,000 years ago was not an object of celebration. It was an object of horror. Horror. It's hard to think of any uh, shape that connotes more horror uh, for somebody 2,000 years ago than, than the shape of the cross. Uh, but at the same time, in the, over the last 2,000 years since that moment, it's hard to imagine any shape that has imparted more hope to people than the sign of the cross. And so what I'm trying to point out is that the contradiction just kind of keeps on going. There's a celebration. You're our king. There's the horror of what was about to happen. And then there's hope. And how does that all go together is the question. How does horror and hope, the apparent contradiction, how do they uh, how do they go together? That's the question for today. And here's the deal, friends. Um, you will never really understand Jesus. You will never really understand Christianity. And you will never really understand this spiritual life until you can see how the horror of the cross and great hope uh, go together. But it's not just that. It, it, there's, there's something else. You will also never really know uh, what it looks like to oppose evil. You will never really understand the heart of evil, nor will you understand how to oppose and stand against evil until you can see how hope and horror can come together in one, one thing, the cross. But let me, let me just get more specific. The cross, Jesus is suffering and death, that uh, teaches us both the horror of evil and also the cost of its defeat. Um, are you in touch with the horror of evil? It's easy to overlook it sometimes, um, but then other times, and maybe with a week like this, you can't see around it. It just stares you in the face when you watch some of what has happened. 
in Nashville and other places. And when you look at the cross, you see the horror of evil in great detail, but you also see the cost of its defeat, and therefore you're equipped with how to oppose it, both in your life and other and around you, okay? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start by asking the question, uh, how shall we understand the horror of evil? Uh, and uh, go to your reading, and I want to start at almost the end. We're going to be looking at both those uh, big, long readings. Um, here's one of the things that is very strange about Jesus' death. The moment that Jesus dies, something happens at the temple in Jerusalem, and you've got to understand it. Um, now, just for a moment, think about geography. If you looked at a, a map of ancient Jerusalem, Jesus was executed just outside the city wall, just west of the city, so far as we know. However, the temple is, is on the eastern portion of Jerusalem. And the moment that Jesus dies, the way Matthew tells the story, the camera angle has been set upon Jesus unflinchingly the entire book. But then the moment Jesus dies, the camera angle cuts to something like a kilometer away to the other side of the city to something that happened in the temple. Why? It's the first time Jesus has not been center frame in the whole story. Why? Uh, well, think about the Jewish temple for a few minutes. Um, the Jewish temple uh, was not just a normal building. The Jewish temple was a message uh, expressed in architecture. Uh, more specifically, if you could take the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, and if you could take all that it is, when it's a big book, and boil it down into a, a central message, and then take that message and construct a building to express that message, you would come out with something like the temple. And the temple, the architecture, had at least two messages. There was more than that, but let me just focus here. There was, on the one hand, a message of embrace. Uh, so at the center of the temple, there was a room. It was a small room. It was called the Holy of Holies. And uh, the Jewish people understood that God, the God of the Old Testament, lived, so to speak, or was present in that room in a, in a remarkably unique way. And the message was that the Jewish people, and ultimately all of humanity, was designed to enter into that presence and to be embraced by God. The message of the temple was a message of embrace. We were all designed to be embraced by God. But then here comes another contradiction, or apparent one, because the message of the temple was also a message of exclusion. Um, because nobody was really allowed in that little room. There was a curtain, a curtain of exclusion that kept you out. Now, there was one person, a high priest, he could go in once a year. But generally speaking, nobody was allowed in that room of the presence in that room of embrace. And so what the temple said through its curtain was something like this. You were all of you made to be embraced by God, but you are excluded from that embrace. You can come within eye shot, eye, a seeing distance, so to speak, of the temple, but you can't really come into the midst of the embrace. You're excluded. Now the question is, what explains that contradiction? Why would God 
create humanity for embrace in, su in, in such a manner that we're never really satisfied outside the reach of that embrace, and yet, at the same time, exclude us uh, from it? Do you see the question? Well, let that question just hang out here. Why the exclusion? A and then, in your mind, go now uh, to the beginning of the first reading uh, and consider the priests. Uh, and in particular, look at how the priests treat Judas. Uh, look at verse 3. Uh, you remember the, Ju the Judas story? Judas was one of Jesus's closest followers, but then uh, he, uh, the, the priests and the elders hired Judas to help them arrest Jesus. And, and Judas goes for it. He, he takes the money and he hands over Jesus. But then in verse 3, at the beginning of that first reading, G, uh, Judas, there comes this remarkable moment when the evil can get undone. There's this remarkable moment where Judas uh, runs to the priests and he changes his mind and he, he kind of fesses up. In uh, verse 4, he says, I've sinned. I've, uh, Jesus is innocent. He's not guilty. Uh, here's the money. Take it back and let him go free. But look at how the priests respond. Verse 4. What is that to us? See to it yourself. Now, Emmanuel, I want you to slow down and I want you to uh, internalize the horror of that moment. The priests had a job to do. They were supposed to teach truth. But they decided to suppress that truth. They knew that Jesus was innocent, but they suppressed that truth and they betrayed their calling. The priests were supposed to promote righteousness and, and justice, but they suppressed that and they corrupted their calling and their righteousness and the justice they were supposed to protect. And, and the priests were supposed to care for people. They're supposed to be shepherds. And yet here they are looking at Judas, burdened down by guilt that's too heavy for him to bear, and they won't even lift a finger to help him. In the Old Testament, they're called shepherds that turned into wolves. You see the contradiction? I mean, some of these priests were the very priests that were rarely allowed into that most holy place, and yet they use that privilege to brutalize anyone that they do not find useful to their ends. Now, let me ask you a question, Emmanuel. Do you think those priests deserve God's embrace? Or let me ask it differently. Do you think, can you see why God might rightly exclude those priests? No. You don't misrepresent me like that and get away with it. No. You see, if, if God does not exclude the evil of those priests, then he's complicit with it. And if he's complicit with it, then we have an, an all-powerful God who is complicit with evil, and that's a horror too great to bear. So God excludes. But, but now, think... Now move from the priest, now go to Pilate. Pilate wasn't a priest. Uh, he was a Roman governor. He did not have the privilege to enter the temple at all, but he did have the power to kill. 
And just like the priests, he knows Jesus is innocent. In fact, his wife has a dream about it and, and comes to him in verse 19 and says, don't have anything to do with that righteous man. But like the priests, he suppresses the truth, he corrupts justice, and he brutalizes a man that he ought to protect. Emmanuel, I'm trying to show you that religious evil is full of horror. And so is secular political evil. You can see it both here. And, and so can you see why God is right to exclude evil and to exclude those who perpetrate it? Because if he doesn't, then he's complicit with the evil he fails to exclude, and that is a horror beyond our ability to fear. All right, all this is a bit heavy. Um, let me ask you what is going to sound like a random question. Everybody take a deep breath. Ready for random? Um, you ever been envious of anyone? Uh, have you ever uh, been a, kind of in competition, maybe a sibling, maybe a coworker, maybe somebody at school? You've been a little bit in competition. You're like, oh, I want to edge just a little bit ahead, but they edge just a little bit ahead, and you find yourself just a little resentful at their success, just a touch. Uh, or have you ever, have they failed? And you just a little secretly happy about it. You ever been envious? Envy is naughty. It's not evil, though, right? I mean, it's not worthy of exclusion, is it? Here's another question. Have you ever succumbed to peer pressure? Remember that word? Um, uh, have you ever have you ever been around a group of people and and the group of people uh, and and maybe they're people that you you, you kind of need you feel like you need their approval and they start doing something that's just a bit dodgy, uh, but you 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 don't oppose it because it's like well you know I roll ah what's it really what good is it gonna do to stand against it you know I don't want to be a you know prude or something, um, so you go along with it a little bit or you don't say no now. That's, that's a bit naughty, right? It's not evil. It's not worthy of exclusion. What am I playing at? Look at verse 18. The uh, pilot could see right through the priests. He knew that they were driven by, wait for it, envy. Now, Emmanuel, I need you to slow down and let that sink in. Little old run-of-the-mill envy was the animating principle behind the priest's religious corruption. Big evil fits inside little sins. The horror that perpetrated the cross lurks inside the envy we feel every day. Or think about Pilate. Because Pilate didn't really envy Jesus. Um, he just didn't want to deal with a mess. And verse 24, he, he publicly announces that Jesus is innocent, but he's unwilling to stand against the tide of public opinion. So, I mean, he was lazy. He was a coward. And he, he caved to pressure. Any of that ever described you? 
big evil fits inside little tiny sins. And the horror of the cross hides behind our willingness to just kind of look the other way in certain circumstances. But here's the thing about little sins. Little sins feel little when you're doing it. Yeah? Um, envy feels little and normal. Uh, looking the other way, maybe even it, maybe sometimes it feels in a way virtuous. Those sins, they feel little even when we recognize them as sins. But the problem with little sins is they set us upon a trajectory. Sin leads us someplace. It leads us someplace step by step by step. But at the same time, sin is always blinding us to the trajectory and where it's taking us. But you can see in this reading where it is that sin wants to take us. And you can see it in the brutality of the crowd and in the despair of Judas. See, remember the crowds, right? The crowds, they, they welcome Jesus. With palm branches, just like we did. But by Friday, they're calling for his death. Now, the answer is why. Why is that contradiction there? And here's why. That's where sin always wants to take us, step by step. And, and here's a little bit about how it works. Sin always centers the self, our own agenda. And when I'm centering myself, uh, I will welcome anyone that I find useful to me pursuing my, uh, my agenda, including God. If I find God is helpful to me pursuing my own ends, by all means, I'll welcome him. Hosanna to the son of David, I might say. But if God become, becomes for me an obstacle... If God starts to stand in my way, and if I begin to feel his no, and if I begin to feel something of an exclusion I don't want to feel, if God gets in my way, then I'll find a way to eliminate him. Crucify him. Sin is excluded by God. Because before God ever excludes us, sin is us excluding God first. Sin wants to take us to exclude God as our opponent. But the minute we exclude God, sin abandons us. And we're abandoned like the priests abandoned Judas. And like Judas, we're left with nothing, nothing nothing but the despair of our exclusion, and it's self-imposed. Can you see the horror of sin, Emmanuel? Well, today we're beginning Holy Week. And we cannot enter Holy Week imagining that evil and sin is someplace out there. Let me be clear, is sin resident in uh, corrupt religious institutions? Sadly, yes, it is. Is sin resident in corrupt political institutions and structures? Sadly, yes, it is. But it is also closer than that, Emmanuel. It is crouching at our door. It wants to master us. And it's closer than my breath. 
You've got to see the horror of sin until we're humbled to it. You've got to see the horror of sin until you're contrite because of it. You've got to see the horror of sin until you're appalled at your own sin and not just appalled at somebody else's. But when you can see the horror of sin, uh, that's when we're ready to witness the cost of its defeat. I'll go back to the temple. Remember, the temple was a message etched into architecture. Uh, It said we are made for God's embrace, but we're excluded because of our sin and God's right to exclude it. Well, what do we do with that contradiction and how does it get addressed? Well, now in your mind, shift from the temple to Jesus Christ himself. Because Jesus is the same message embodied in a person. Or or maybe better, uh, Jesus is God's answer to that contradiction. Not just spoken with words, but embodied in a person. Um. Think with me. Um, Jesus, we find out in the rest of Scripture, is, I mean, he's a human. He's fully human, just as human as you. And God designated Jesus to be the human that represents all humans. Um, He had to be human in order to represent us uh, rightly. So, you know, you think about an ambassador. Why can an ambassador represent a nation? Well, two things have to be in place. Uh, She has to, first of all, be a citizen of the country she wants to represent. And then secondly, she has to be appointed to that role. The same thing is true of Jesus. Jesus is human, and so he can represent humans, and he's designated by God to get that done. But at the same time, Jesus is also God himself. And because Jesus is God as well as human, he can offer himself as his substitute. He can suffer the exclusion we deserve so that we don't have to suffer it. And you can see this play out when Jesus is on the cross. In verse 46, as Jesus hangs upon the cross, darkness falls over the whole of the earth, and it's a sign of God's exclusion and of God's wrath. And at the same time, in a gruesome moment, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's quoting Psalm 22 because he prayed it all the time, but through Psalm 22... He's expressing the costliness of defeating sin. As the human, he's representing all humanity, and he's suffering under the weight of God's righteous exclusion of all human sin. But at the same time, he's God, and he's God lovingly offering himself to suffer the exclusion of his own justice so that we can receive an embrace we don't deserve. And in that moment, Jesus yielded his innocent life. And as he yielded his innocent life, the, ex- the contradiction between justice and love was reconciled. And the contradiction between exclusion and embrace was reconciled. And the exclusion woven into the architecture of the temple was resolved. And that's why in verse 51, the moment Jesus dies, the camera angle changes. And for the first time, Jesus is no longer in view, but we see if we cannot understand all the depths of the mystery that happened upon the cross, we can, re- we can see its effects. And the effect was that the curtain of the temple was torn down. 
And what does that mean? It means you don't have to be excluded. And the way is open to the embrace for which you are made. Can you see the horror of sin? And can you see the costliness of its defeat? You're never going to be able to stand against evil until you see both. And you're never going to see both until you look at Jesus on the cross. And that's what this week's all about, Emmanuel. Don't waste this week, okay? I'm not saying turn it into some religious duty. That's wasting it. Don't do that. I'm saying get your eyes fixed on Jesus this week and walk with him. And walk with him as your Savior walks before you into the horror that you deserve. Watch him and keep your eyes on him. And don't take your eyes off him and continue with him until you see the horror of sin and until you see the costliness of its defeat. And keep looking at him until you find yourself humbled down, until you see that it's your sin and not everybody else's that put him there. And then as you see the costliness of his defeat, look for thankfulness to begin to swell within your heart as you see that God gives himself for you in a love that it transcends all other definitions of love and keep your eyes fixed on him. And in that moment, you're going to learn to resist evil. And it's going to start that you're going to find yourself unyielding in resisting and rejecting the evil that is resident within yourself. And then you're going to find yourself wanting to resist the evil that you see around you. But at the same time, you're going to find yourself in the midst of that humility, looking at people around you who deserve exclusion, and you're going to want mercy for them. You're going to want for them the mercy that you have received, the mercy that has shaped you who you are, the mercy that has made you new. You're going to want that for everybody else. And as you are an opponent of your own sin, and as you are an ally seeking the mercy for people who don't deserve it around you, that's when you're going to become an agent of righteousness in the midst of a wicked world. Ready? Because that's where Jesus has taken you, and he's not taking you anyplace else. So which trajectory? The trajectory that sin wants to lure you to or the trajectory where Jesus purchased for you. Follow him. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.